Hello, devoted Crit listeners. This is co-host Oliver transmitting to you with updates on our podcast, The Crit. We apologise there hasn't been an episode for a month or so. I'm afraid we've just been too flipping busy making the new issue of Decenio, the quarterly journal of design, which I'm delighted to tell you is due to hit newsstands on 6th of June. It's a great issue, packed full of some really interesting design stories from altruism with all in all, discussion of how design represents the future and who is excluded from those futures, a trip into Yinkara Lori's new studio, and a report from the beta testing of OMA's long overdue Taipei Performing Arts Centre and its role in Taiwanese politics. So if you like the sound of any of that, or hopefully all of that actually, then pick up a copy from the 6th of June. We will be resuming regular service with the Crit a little bit later in June after we've had a chance to visit Milan's Salone de Moble. So stay tuned for that. But in the interim, we wanted to put out this little bonus episode just to tide you over to sate the hunger pangs for design news. Last week, I was lucky to visit the Eden Project down in Cornwall, that's where all the plants live, to see the press launch of Pollinator Pathmaker, a new artwork from Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg. Pollinator Pathmaker is a garden that was planted back in September that has been specifically designed to appeal to pollinators rather than humans. So it takes account of insects' very different sensory apparatus, the way in which they like to move between plants, and also the species of plants that pollinators like to feed on. The garden has been created using the algorithm that Ginsberg and her team developed, And that algorithm is also publicly available as an online platform where you can create your own gardens that's available at pollinator.art. You input a series of values, the size and rough shape of the land you want to plant, soil type, pH, light levels, you know, all that kind of jazz. And that's then assessed to create a space that will delight bees and their ilk. So, down at the idyllic Eden Project, surrounded by tropical plants, bees and beetles, I was very happy to get a chance to sit down with Daisy and speak to her a little bit about her work. You are going to hear a recording of that now, which is accompanied by some very delightful audio of pollinators that has been provided by Nick Ryan. So, sit back and enjoy. Thanks for coming on, Daisy. It's wonderful to be here with you, Eden. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit generally, because in a lot of your recent work, like The Wilding of Mars, The Substitute, and now Pollinator Pathmaker, I think there's this sense of reflection on the role of the artist and designer and how they can interact with themes like this, so around extinction, around climate change. And I think normally when you have that discussion, it's very focused on the role of arts as a communicator, the way it can make a lot of these issues legible and understandable and immediate to an audience. And I wanted to hear your reflections on that because there's a very deliberate um, move in Pollinator Pathmaker. It obviously does have communicative value for sure, but you've been very explicit. This is an artwork for pollinators Um, not about them, which is unusual. And it it would be good to hear a little bit why you did that and your thinking around your practice and how it connects with these issues. Why don't we make art for other species? I think that's one of the the questions. So with Pollinator Pathmaker, the 
commission was to make an artwork about pollinators to bring attention to the jeopardy that they face. And in thinking about that, I was sort of reflecting on what I've already been doing, making art about biodiversity collapse and the climate emergency, but using a lot of material to tell that story or electricity to tell that mm. story through pieces like Resurrecting the Sublime or um, The Substitute, maybe less so because that's a digital projection. But there was this opportunity to actually think about what it means to fabricate for other species. And, and ultimately, I'm really quite interested in the kinds of values that come out of that shift in perspective. So thinking about altruism, empathy, generosity, and how we can, if it's even possible to design with those perspectives and not ultimately for human benefit. Of course, supporting pollinators is for human benefit because we need them to survive. But if we start to think about creating with those sets of values, it sets up a lot of challenges for the creation of artworks for human audiences, but also all the structures around creating art as well. So here is also a question of aesthetics. And in the works I've been making, like The Wilding of Mars, Resurrecting the Sublime, The Substitute, I'm really fascinated by the idea of the sublime itself, this sort of awesome terror yeah. uh, combination at, at nature and sort of man, in inverted commas, um, sort of encounter with nature as this mm. other, this terrifying and, and awesome other. And it is the sublime is an aesthetic experience. It's a transformational experience. This idea of you know nineteenth century gentlemen hiking up the Alps to look at nature and going back down on the train or, to master nature <laughs> yeah. and and to have this sensation. It's an aesthetic experience. And so I say, well, what is what is an aesthetic experience? A garden is an aesthetic experience. A designed garden is you know, being put together in certain ways that we feel things and we have sort of beauty as we understand it. And I was curious, if, again, if we're thinking about empathy, altruism, these other kinds of, of values, what is aesthetics from the perspective of another species? And there's all these interesting words that start to get mixed up in that, like taste, and well, bees are, are you know quite literally tasting the mm. flowers, but we're looking at them and they're, they're meeting our expectations of taste, which means something very different. So it's a way to start playing and experimenting with some of those ideas. But the, the sort of the thought of shifting what a garden is for away from this idea of it being for human benefit, um, but really saying, well, the decisions we make and where we plant things. How do I distance my needs from that and, and put other species first was, was the challenge. How easy is it to do that kind of interspecies work and empathise? Because normally when we talk about empathy, you presume a certain closeness, right? We talk about, well, put yourself in their shoes. Bees and it's don't a, wear shoes. Bees don't wear shoes. This is the <laughs> essential issue. <laughs> and but you, presu yeah. you presume a closeness. You presume that kind of common apparatus with which you interact with the world, whereas... Like you were saying before, the senses with which pollinators are interacting with the garden are totally different. It, it's, a, it's a very radical shift. How, how successfully do you think you can make that move? That, I mean, that's the question. I, I can't put myself in bees' shoes because they don't wear shoes. <laughs> and that's the thing, that this is all anthro, you know, anthropomorphic and anthrop mm -hmm. anthropomorphizing other species to try and put ourselves... Um, 
in their in their shoes quite literally <laughs> um, and by that I mean we can only imagine what it's like to be these species and how to design for them because you know the natural world which we're part of has its own it doesn't have an agenda it just is so anything any intervention is going to have you know, knock-on effects other kinds of unintended consequences things that we can't anticipate but ultimately it is an artwork and that's it. It's not a restoration project. It's not, yeah. And then you say, well, what is a restoration project? Why are we restoring something? Nature isn't something, or biology more specifically is not something that stands still. Evolution doesn't stand still. You know, we're talking about preservation, restoration, rewilding. These are all human ways of thinking about where the world should be. And not, you know, pollinator pathmaker can't answer any of those questions, but it sort of begins to open them up. And, and for me, that's the, the fun of exploring ideas like this, is thinking, well, yeah. <laughs> if I wanted to do something simple, like make a garden that's not from my perspective, um, what are all the issues that come up along the way? And that's how I like to practice, is, is making things that, that open up those questions for me. I think one dominant thread that seems to run through a lot of the recent work is this slight discomfort with certainty, right? And often, I mean, as you know well from the PhD, design sometimes talks about itself as making things better um, and and tr- trying to present itself as having that objective view. And I, I know typically your work now is described in terms of art rather than design, which would be interesting to hear about. But you seem to have that sort of reservation around the, cer- the certainty that some of these fields adopt and present themselves as, as having. Well, is anything certain? I mean, well, <laughs> the climate is collapsing, you know, biodiversity is collapsing, uh, the world as we know it is precarious, and, and the world has always been precarious. It's an evolutionary you know, process that we're part of mm. and the planet we live on. Um, but I think specifically around design, and you mentioned my PhD, which was looking at this this sort of belief that design makes things better. Mm. And the question here is really um, kind of, it does relate to that in part, the idea that when we think of bettering, that's a human value. And we're talking about changing existing circumstances to preferred ones. And you know, we ask the question, well, are humans the only species that can actually anticipate the future or imagine otherwise? And that's really at the, is at the heart of being human, is being dissatisfied with the current circumstances and imagining that it could be different and, or better. And so here with Pollinator Pathmaker, the question is, well, does, can design exist without that idea of bettering? Can it be altruistic? Can it, is it possible to even design for other species and not for our own benefit? And I suspect the answer is no. Like, what, you know, mm-hmm. This is an artwork up on a hill. It's aesthetically pleasing, even though I tried for it not to be still full of pretty flowers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the human eye is tuned to like the color green and to, you know, to appreciate the, the visual cacophony of all the different colors and flowers in bloom. But is it about bettering? Well, it's about bettering for other species, but those species themselves have no concept of what is better or worse. They just exist, and you know, better for insects is, is survival across a species, not an individual bee saying, oh, I wish that there were more flowers <laughs> like this one over there. That's not, it's a, a human set of values.
As you say, this is an experiment. You don't know what the outcomes will be. It's going to run over the course of many years. There's already a couple more formal gardens going up, and you hope members of the public will be planting their own too. How do you kind of analyse it over that period? What is success for you with this project? How are you looking at it and seeing, oh, well, I've, I've established this from it, or that's interesting, that really worked, we got a lot of pollinators, or it drove a lot of interaction with it and awareness. What, what are you specifically looking for in that? I mean, I think all of those. I, I mean, I've planted my own DIY edition at home, and I planted it at the beginning of October 2021 and it's starting to emerge I've had excitement as I looked at it and thought is that a weed or did I plant it and these are all the things that I want to learn along the way is is for me it's helped introduce me to gardening which is something I was scared of because it's sort of this big scary thing it's people who know how to garden and, and know how to look after all these plants and know what to do and it's a um, quite daunting body of knowledge for the beginner. And I think there is a growing understanding of the benefits of gardening and like younger generations getting more excited about it. And with the pandemic, this, like, this very serious issue of the lack of access to nature right, that emerged yeah. and the um, inequity of access as well. So there are multiple success sort of goals, I guess you could say. I, I mean, in a way, I don't like putting measurements on art, saying, mm. you know, is it better or not? Um, but if we have lots of pollinators visiting, if lots of people can find ways to plant gardens, and of course, many people, most people don't have a garden, so in that there is a sort of inbuilt need to enable creative activism. So, you know, I want to plant one at school. Very excited children <laughs> yeah, to hoping, enjoy the Eden project. I'm hoping that they're just getting so excited about the idea. That's of true. I gardens. assumed excited. <laughs> um, so the idea that you have to to be transformed in the process. So I've been transformed as I now look at my little garden and think, "Oh my God, I've planted this thing. I paid for all these plants. I've dug this hole." put the plants in and now I have to keep it alive. But the reward is enormous. You know, each time I go out and see that there's another flower that's emerged and another bee on it, and I'm like, what kind of bee is that? And this little bumblebee bum is sticking out of a, <laughs> a flower. And it's super exciting, and it's that moment of transformation, which is sublime in itself. And, you know, you're looking at a plant in a completely different way. You know, oh, I've seen a bee on a flower before, but suddenly it's my flower. I planted it. I've, I've, it's stayed alive, this plant, over winter, and I've done it, and my job is to be caretaker. So it's that kind of set of feelings. And for the DIY campaign, people can plant their own additions. If, you know, if you can find a patch at a school, you've got to go through this whole process of persuading people to join in, fundraise, make this happen. And that is creative activism, for you know, enabling, giving people agency to do that. I wouldn't claim to be an activist. I think it's a real honour to take that title, but I'm hoping people um, who want to participate and can get that to happen, to see themselves as activists, because it is an activist action mm. to, to create that kind of transformation in the public space. And then when it comes to our primary customers, the pollinators and the plants, yeah, we want to develop experimental methods to do counting, to mm. see... Which pollinators are visiting? Do we, are we supporting a wide range of pollinators? I think we've become very used to you know, the idea of 
the collapse of bee colonies, honeybee colony collapse that's being increasingly publicised and is really important. But there's only one species of honeybee in the UK, and it's 250 species of bees, and we need all of them. And so finding ways to connect people with all those different insects and their importance and, and feeling ownership and stewardship over the natural world is, is really important to me. So in a way, the goal is this very challenging thing that I've set of creating the world's largest climate-positive artwork. And how do you even measure that? And that's part of, again, another set of issues around car- you know, carbon offsetting and carbon positive or carbon negative and all these words that are being used. Um, and this idea of climate positivity is you know, a question of, well, how do you measure that? And coming back to the idea of measurement. So in a way, it's a goal. We may actually already have achieved it. I don't know. Um, and that's something that we're also looking at, like how do you, how do you begin to quantify climate positivity? Because that is where we all need to be heading. I mean, you mentioned the idea of activism before and, and not wanting to put that label on it, but I think something we could say is it's definitely more explicitly public-facing than previous works or, or, or faces a much broader public, potentially. Is that something you want to continue with your work? Because thematically, Pollinator Pathmaker picks up on lots of things in the substitute, in resurrecting the sublime. But the mode of presentation is very different, the way in which people can do this of their own initiative at home. And that seems quite interesting. And I know you've spoken before about that concern of whether a gallery presentation is limiting in a way. A child screaming. <laughs> the horror at the gallery. idea oh, of the gallery. No. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> But it definitely, you know, galleries are public places, mm. but they do perhaps have a, a tighter mm. audience. Mm. And I think there is always that fear, is this work just going out into an echo chamber? This seems like yeah. a new... Well, I think the gallery view. is a really important place for reflection. But as you say, it's an exclusive place. And I think lots of museums and galleries are working on improving access and, and making them more inclusive places but Pollinator Pathmaker is maybe doing something different I mean I'm I've not done a community project before and we've not had the investment in Pollinator Pathmaker to do that to promote that part of the project we've essentially put this thing online I'm going to figure out how to do it along the way and but the core idea is, is around agency and I think that's what's different from what I've done before so with the works in the gallery, like The Substitute, you're confronted with this northern white rhino. And I began to feel uncomfortable with, you know, I love that piece and I continue to show it. And it's a very emotion-inducing piece when you confront it eye to eye with this rhino. But what's next? Yeah. What happens next? I've, you know, am I just making people feel powerless? Um, and I wanted here to, to try something different with this idea. Of, of giving agency. Can't solve the pollinator crisis, the climate crisis, but I can think about my own panic mm. and, and paralysis in the face of all of this and being a human con- contributing to it all. And it's that feeling of agency through something really positive. You know, thinking of a garden as art is, you know, being outside and saying, well, I'm standing in my artwork mm. and I've you know, been able to do this. Is, is empowering and that's a different sort of thing for me I don't know if I'll continue making projects like this but the idea of a pollinator pathmaker is to see if we can push that forward with the different partners and, and see what it looks like
I'm not, as you say, you know, my practice has not been based in, in community art, so it's new for me. That sort of stance you take in relation to the issues is quite an interesting one, I think, because perhaps not art, but design anyway, is often framed as this very optimistic field, right? It's sort of seen as problem-solving or whatever. And there's that slight insanity of, sorry, why are we expecting designers and artists to solve climate change? Like, it's, it's great if people are involved and it's interesting, but there seems something seems to have gone wrong there if, if, you're, if you're wanting that kind of work to solve what is clearly a political mm. issue and, mm. and, and requires political intervention. I agree. And we can do more as citizens probably than mm. as designers or, or artists. But I know for me, looking at this garden that I've made here at Eden, the first garden I ever planted, which is crazy, it's 55 metres long, and the second garden I planted is my little one at home, my DIY edition. It's really exciting to step outside that, that gallery, those walls, and actually think, well, this is positive. It's not solutionist, mm. but it's positive. I was listening a lot during the lockdowns to Christiana Figueres' um, podcast, right. Global, what's it called? Um, Global Optimism. So she okay. was the, negotiated the Paris climate agreement and she talks about stubborn optimism and I think it's kind of an interesting approach you know to be optimistic doesn't mean necessarily that you think it's all going to come right but what else is there to do but I'm not Mm. saying problem solving because this is definitely not going to solve the problems but this idea of hopefulness has to be there otherwise we're completely completely (laughs) I mean otherwise there's no point yeah. Like, what what do what can we do? We need to be protesting. We need to be activists. We need to be on the streets shouting, and we're not. Well, I'm not. But looking at a bumblebee and supporting a bumblebee is in itself still a hopeful act. I think the last area I want to touch on, and who knows if we use this because it's you know it's a little bit of a tangent, but just on the practical side, I'm quite interested in how you communicate this artwork because you know it's within the studios the projects that you do are kind of advertisements for your work and future commissioners see them and it builds this is quite a hard piece to capture and document in some ways because of the time scale for one thing I mean we're what about nine months ish into the bedding in period now like you say this garden is going to exist over the course of years it's it's a tricky thing because there's not that sort of headline image you can stick out there and say look at this beautiful, flashy garden. Because again, it's been designed in a very different way. This hasn't been designed for human aesthetic appreciation. Or press deadlines. Or press deadlines. <laughs> does, that make it, does that make it more challenging to communicate? I think so. And I, I mean, having the website pollinator.art where you can see the visualisation of a garden as you create it and see it carry across the seasons, hopefully you know, helps manage expectations of, as you stare at your bare piece of earth waiting for the seeds to germinate, mm-hmm. um, that it's worth the wait. But, I mean, that's also a really important lesson. I think we all learned that in our, you know, in the cultural industries during the pandemic, certainly is you know, the madness of three-month museum shows, you know, a few years' work to mount a show, and then the work goes, and, you know, all this waste, this kind of crazy cycle. Why can't projects take much longer you know, a building takes 10 years why you know an mm. artwork maybe should take five years to, mm. to fully emerge and it changes and that's what's so interesting working with 
with living things is that they just don't behave as you want them to. You can't say like, you know, come on, we've got the press for you. <laughs> come, come on, come on, the FT are coming. <laughs> come on, Echiums. Um, and things die. And But that's actually all really helpful lessons, I think, for where we are in the world is that nature is fast, but it's also slow and it's delicate and it's susceptible to the environment, to people, and it's vulnerable, and we need to look after it. Daisy, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. And yeah, go smell the flowers and identify some bees. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt, which was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and produced and edited by Evie Hall. All music for The Crypt has been created by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo was designed by Leonard Rothmeiser. 